I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So we're back and we are remote this week, George, for a very special, very exciting reason. I think congratulations are in order. Yes, we've had a baby or Thea has had a baby, baby Pax, little boy born on Tuesday, he's doing really well. Mum's doing really well. I've just come from the hospital. I've had a special dispensation to come and do the podcast because amazing Baby Pax is already following us. He's hit follow on his podcast app. Has he really? Yvette had um, a rule that she would change no nappies in the first month after the birth of every child. Does Thea apply that rule? No, she should. <laughs> she doesn't. I, I, I'm, there's lots of nappy changing. In fact, we've got a two-year-old, a one-year-old, and now a zero-year-old. So there are lots of different uh, nappy sizes. You are now outnumbered. You can't do one-to-one <laughs> marking. It's a much, much bigger challenge. I had no idea. Absolutely wonderful that. You know what? It's a, I'll tell you, when you look into his eyes, this little baby, you are just reminded what an absolute miracle it is Amazing. that uh, these little babies are born and... Uh, I wonder what the world's going to be like that he hopefully spends the next uh, century or so living in. Amazing. I had no idea that Yvette had this rule that she changed no nappies. I just did as I was told. I'm sure you do as well, but, you know, Thea should make you do all the work. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm you doing do, my, you, do, you know. You are doing a podcast. Uh, all the you're doing a podcast. Uh, What's going on? We have to cut this out or else I won't be able to do another one. (laughs) We should get on with it, George. Come on, come on. Yes. This week, we are, of course, talking about the big U-turn that Labour have executed, or have they? There's a lot of speculation as we record this podcast that they are going to ditch really their central economic pledge, which is to spend £28 billion on creating a greener economy. Then we're going to talk about this week's rather surprisingly named Popular Conservatism Conference, which has had List Trust the embodiment of popular conservative speaking. And we're going to ask what that means and also reflect upon Rishi Sunak's week. And then we're going to talk about King Charles's cancer diagnosis. We, of course, wish him well, but what does it mean for our monarchy and its relationship to the political world? And maybe we can share a couple of nice King Charles stories. We definitely can. And I think, you know, it was a surprise the way in which it was announced. I think that tells us something about... um, 
the way we think about both the monarchy and also the treatment of cancer now. I think things have changed. It'll be interesting to talk about that. But uh, first of all, as you said, big day in Labourland. Yes. Well, I have to say, Ed, you called this. You said a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, in fact, you first started saying this before Christmas, and then you laid it out clearly to them that uh, they needed to ditch this £28 billion promise to essentially decarbonize the economy with all sorts of pledges to insulate homes and decarbonize industry and have green hydrogen. Anyway, the whole thing came to a £28 billion package. And you were very clear on this podcast that they needed to do a big screeching U-turn. Screeching because unless people noticed, the Conservatives would continue to bash them round the head. This is what you told them to do. If you're going to do a U-turn, you've got to notice it. You've got to see it happen. People need to hear Labour say that their commitment to sound public finances and the fiscal rules comes before spending more money on this agenda. They won't resile from a green plan, but I think they'll have to come off this 28 billion number. They'll have to say the 28 billion number is gone, that it's ditched, or else they're going to be open to this attack. You need a dead parrot sketch. You need to absolutely kill the 28 billion. You need something which looks like a U-turn. So we have our dead parrot. It is uh, deceased. Well, we think it's deceased, actually. What I think has happened is that Labour is planning to ditch its £28 billion spending promise. And The Guardian got a leak of this. And as we record things, it's still not exactly clear how the U-turn is going to be executed. But I think it's pretty clear it's happening. So they've listened to you, Ed. But the problem with ditching things is that you immediately then invite a whole load of criticism from other people who are very wedded to the idea that Labour had a serious plan to decarbonise the economy. There will be a lot of people concerned about climate change who will be very disappointed. What do you think, Ed? Well-executed U-turn or had to be messy because it's always going to be difficult to ditch your central economic policy? Well, as we were saying, it had to be messy and a bit kind of clunky and you know, a bit awkward, a bit embarrassing to be effective. They aren't going to resile from their economic policy or their climate change policy, but they are coming off the number. They've been coming off it for some months saying the fiscal rules will come first. It's only what we can afford. It will only be what the government is not already spending in certain areas. It wasn't 28 billion already, but they had to come off the number. And if they're being attacked by the left, that will help them. And if they're being attacked by people saying, are you really still serious about climate change? That's an opportunity to make that argument. But what they've had to do was shoot the 28 billion fox, because that was the thing which became the hidden bombshell, the secret plan, the tax rise to come, or the borrowing which led to higher interest rates. The Tories may now say, oh, you know, they've not really come off it. They've still got a secret plan for 28 billion. But I think the scale and screechingness of this U-turn actually makes it very hard for the Tories to run that attack. So I would say, right thing to do, well executed, but it won't blunt the climate change objective. Right. So I, I would say right things do not particularly well executed because it has been quite messy. And But you have you noticed you it. Yes, but you didn't need Keir Starmer earlier this week recommitting the party to it yeah. uh, when he presumably knew he was about to do this. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess the, what I would ask... The scripts weren't updated. <laughs> the leader is the script, you know. Two observations. One is you've got to hand it to the Conservatives. They've been in a real mess, as we know. Politically, we're going to come on and talk about that again later on this show. But this is 
classic Tory attack machine working pretty effectively. They got that twenty-eight billion pound number established in people's minds as a real problem for Labour. So you know, I think we should acknowledge that and shows the kind of Tory campaign effort beginning to click into gear. And then second, I would say, you know, when you do a U-turn, the moment you came off them, you suddenly open the door to all the problems of coming off this commitment. And I would just highlight these. You know, first of all, this was Labour's central economic argument about how it was going to have a different plan for the economy than the Tories, which is was going to be more productive, more successful, and therefore generate greater wealth that could be spent on public services. They don't now have a kind of economic policy. They're basically matching Tory fiscal rules. And then second, you know, I do wonder whether the kind of green voter, you know, the people who are concerned about the climate, who've been abandoned by Sunak, now feel a bit abandoned by Labour. And where are they going to go? Or is or can the Labour opposition just assume that those voters are going to be with them on polling day? I'm not sure that you're right about the Tory strategy. I think it would have been much better from their point of view if Labour's manifesto was written and the leaflets were published. And then you had this big sort of challenge to Keir Starmer about the 28 billion and the threat to interest rates or taxes, which came from that at a point where it was very hard for him to resile because they've gone so early. The truth is, in the public, nobody's going to kind of know what the 28 billion is or what it meant. It won't be being talked about in six months' time. The Tories will not succeed in getting up the idea they've got a secret plan to do it, really. We tried that quite often in the past, um, and it doesn't work because the journalists don't buy it because the scale of the U-turn is so big and clear. So I slightly wonder whether the Tories have gone too early and allowed Labour to do the U-turn at a timing which they choose. And then you are right that the focus will now shift to what is Labour's growth and green plan? The 2030 commitment to net zero electricity generation was already a very, very ambitious objective. That's where the debate will go to. And I think it will be Labour still pushing forward with ambition and the government looking like it's in retreat on the green issue. So if it moves away from 28 billion and scare to who's got the green plan, Labour will think they can win that argument. It's interesting you mentioned that 2030 pledge. So for people who haven't followed it and it's been quite obscure, the Labour Party have a pledge to create net zero power generation in this country by 2030. The government doesn't have that dissimilar target. They want to do it later in the 2030s. But that's the pledge that sort of sat behind the 28 billion, wasn't it? The 28 billion was designed to create that decarbonized industry and home insulation, all these other things that was going to deliver that 2030 pledge. And what I'm told, I've been chatting to some of the people who've putting together the Tory election campaign for later this year, they've always thought that 2030 pledge is the real vulnerability for Labour because they can put, the Tories can put price tags on it now. Labour say, well, it's not going to be 28 billion. Begs the question, well, what is it? And as I understand it, the Treasury's own analysis is that 2030 pledge is indeed incredibly expensive to meet, something that, by the way, the trade unions are also telling Labour. So is that 28, you know, have they not done, maybe they haven't done a big enough U-turn I would ask you, you know, they've kind of come off the number, but they haven't come off the the pledge behind it, the 2030 decarbonisation pledge. You say, well, the Tories will say there's a secret plan. Aren't they entitled to say there's a secret plan? Because how else are you going to meet that pledge? What is the plan to meet that pledge? 
claiming there's a secret plan is always a hard thing to do because journalists see the reality which they ditch the plan and they know what's happened. It's a bit unfair on the 28 billion. You can't say simultaneously it's terrible to have the 28 billion because it will mean a rise in taxes and interest rates. And the moment you come off the number to say that means it's a terrible mistake because everything has disappeared. They've still got the commitment to growth. Yeah, but haven't they got the whole point, Ed? they've, They've come off the number, but they haven't come off the thing that the number was supposed to deliver, which it begs the question, well, how much is it going to cost to deliver your promise? I think though, if you, I mean, if you look at the 2030 goal, I mean, I was looking at the numbers yesterday, over 50% of our electricity yesterday was generated from fossil fuels. You can see that every day on the National Grid website, getting that down to zero or to net zero by 2030 was always very ambitious because it requires the nuclear power stations to be regenerated, the new ones to come online. It requires a huge investment, but also planning in the national grid to come through. I was uh, talking to Nick Butler, who was advisor to Gordon Brown in number 10 when we were there 10 years ago, a visiting professor at King's. He said, nobody in the industry thinks that the 2030 goal is easy, but it's not really about money. It's actually about the whole planning process. But I'm not sure whether for Keir Starmer, this is such a big problem. In the early part of the Labour government, Tony Blair made a speech in which he said, we're going to abolish child poverty in a generation. Gordon was appalled and said, you know, why is he saying these things? I said, it's brilliant from our point of view. That means he's got a half it in 10 years, which means we need to act in the next budget and the next budget after that. We absolutely entrenched that goal for child poverty <laughs> in exactly the same way, by the way, we did internationally with the millennium. So that, led to you, with the, that led to you spending all the money on tax credits, which the Blairites would then roll their eyes at because they'd say, all, of, all the money is going on bloody Gordon Brown's tax credits. And we would say that's because the <laughs> Prime Minister has made this commitment to abolish child poverty in a generation and half it in 10 and we've got to get on with it. Nobody thought we could abolish child poverty in a generation or even half in 10. Nobody thought the Millennium Development Goals could be achieved on the timetable set. But as a big, ambitious, galvanising objective, it says here's what we want to do, here's the direction which we are taking, and there will be fights about planning and about all those different things to get to the 2030 goal. Even Chris Skidmore, who's a big champion of the Green Agenda, doesn't think 2030 can be met. John Gummer, another Conservative, saying that. Loads of Labour people. But you come on, but, I'm but the, the mission. You, know, you and I are not experts on decarbonising the electricity grid. But from everything we've read and all the people we've both spoken to, no one thinks this 2030 goal is achievable. I mean, come on, you don't actually think they're going to be able to hit this 2030 target. Nobody who's an expert thinks it's easy to hit the 2030 objective or even possible. But the threat for Labour was the Tory attack on the 28 billion being a rise in interest rates or in taxes for people. I think it's very hard for the Conservatives to weaponize in a way which is retail the 2030 objective as being too ambitious or too difficult. I think it's very hard to put a price tag on that unless they say the secret plan, which I don't think they can now do because of the 28 billion U-turn. And what it means is that Labour are the people who are ambitious on the green agenda at a time when the government looks like they're walking away from the green agenda. And I think people will say, well, actually, do we think climate change is important? Do we think we should get on with it? I think Rishi Sunak is smart when he says, I want to sort of make sure we get the timetables right so I don't burden people. But if it looks like he is dissing the ambition, then I think actually Labour will think that's quite a good place to have the fight. I would say, isn't it, you know, both the Labour Party and the Conservatives in government now are running into this problem, which is you set these targets and then it comes down to hard numbers. It comes down to boiler taxes, which the Tories are now talking about getting rid of. This was a burden on the industry that produces boilers to create more heat source pumps. There's 
rumors the Tories about to ditch that. You know, the moment you say you're going to decarbonize electricity, you're going to go to net zero, everyone says fantastic. And then it ends up with 28 billion pound price tax, yeah, that's boiler taxes, taxes on people who have to change their cars to electricity. In other words, if both parties are running into the reality of these environmental pledges, which, by the way, I'm in favor of, coming with significant price tags. And the whole kind of mythology that has grown up around this, which is you can go green at no cost, is being exposed. Look, it, there is a cost to this energy transition. It might have opportunities in the future. It might create jobs in the future. But right now, it's a cost because you're moving from a cheap, albeit polluting form of energy, burning coal, burning gas, to a much more expensive form of electricity generation. I agree with that. And I think there is a very kind of live debate about whether the green transition, which is really important thing for us to do, whether that actually contributes to growth in our economies or not. And lots of very eminent economists are quite sceptical about that. But actually, the obstacle to 2030 is not first and foremost financial. It's actually about the planning logistics to actually get the nuclear power stations built, the planning permissions in place, the planning permissions for the national grid. I mean, at the moment, there's a huge queue of, of wind farms trying to access the national grid and they can't get in. To actually get the supply chain for the cables into the sea to link them up, all these things make doing this in five years really hard. But they're actually bigger questions than simply the price tag and who pays. Labour had a problem, which is it looked like they were elevating the number the price tag above everything else. And that was the thing which the Tories thought they could exploit. And I think Labour sensibly, and they're going to be attacked by um, the left, even by some on their own side saying, you know, are they resiling? Are they kind of giving up on the big agenda? If I were Labour, I would be pleased to have got off the number, but I would double down on the ambition. So I, I heard Barry Gardner, who I served on the Transport Select Committee with many years ago. And Barry Gardner, a Barry. legend in his own <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> He's, he, uh, Gordon Brown made him the forestry czar. I think I'm the only person who, apart from Barry, who remembers that. But One the, of many jobs to which he was unsuited, probably. Well, it was one of the many jobs, sort of fake jobs, that Gordon was pretty good at creating to keep keep the PLP happy. He, he was calling on the radio. He's now Corbyn Easter in his latest Is incarnation, he? Barry. And uh, he was calling it politically jeune, which I thought was a very... <laughs> Very kind of uh, French attack on uh, Starmer. But what about... We the idea, seriously? by the way, that Keir Starmer will be upset by anybody from the Corbyn side attacking him on this, you know, I don't I think you'll mind at all. And even John McTernan, the... Um, well, so we should, yes. So John McTernan, let's, let's hear from him. He was a Blair kind of strategist, wasn't he? A new Labour strategist in number 10. Who then went out to Australia and was very important in driving Australian Labour strategy as well for a number of years. Right. So here's what he said on Newsnight. Probably the most stupid decision the Labour Party's made. What would Tony Blair have done? I don't really care what Tony Blair would have done because Tony was the leader in the 20th century. Keir's going to be Prime Minister in the second quarter of the 21st century. This is a decision that we have to make now to decarbonise our economy. And it's one which stands for a purpose, a great purpose, a grand purpose. Great parties have great causes. If you don't have a great cause, you want to change from this government, sure. But change to what? What's, what's the change Labour now offers? Probably the stupidest decision the Labour Party has made. And great parties have great causes. This from someone you've just said, you know, has done a pretty good job in Australia, by the sounds of it, reviving the left there. Look, I think he's wrong uh, about this because I don't think this is a resiling from the mission or the objective. It's getting off what was a mistake, which was to allow the price tag 
to become the dominant issue. And that was the gift to the Conservatives, to their opposition, which they were trying to exploit. And, you know, I'm sure we'll come back to this in the coming weeks, but Keir Starmer is determined to put missions at the centre of his government, his mission on crime and on the NHS and on the economy and on climate change. And I think he'd quite like to have a big debate John McTurn and others as to whether or not he's got a better plan for tackling climate change than the Conservatives. But the reason why Tony Blair would never have signed up to this, and nor would Gordon Brown, is because they'd have known that the number was a killer and they were scarred by the shadow budget of 1992 and they were scarred by John Smith putting numbers on commitments when the numbers became the overriding issue and set up the tax attack. And I think that is the thing which Blair, Brown and Starmer now have avoided. But They've think, shot the toys fox and that's the right thing to do. But look, I think it is fair to say that in 1997, there was a clear idea of what a new Labour government would bring, a philosophy, an approach. Sure. Blair talked about moving from a producer society to a consumer society. Gordon Brown, we were teasing you about it the other day, but you know he had his post-neoclassical endogenous growth theory and all that. You know, so Something you I implemented just, in it, government, actually. Right. And it does feel like they're being tactically smart, Labour. And I don't get me wrong, you know, I've been the shadow chancellor. I absolutely understand why you don't want to get stuck on particular numbers. But even in 2010, I did go into the election with things that were different. And I said I would make some cuts. I tried to explain where the cuts were going to coming from. I said I'd increase the pension age, freeze public sector pay. It's on, you know, difficult things. But it did, you know, it created some grit that said, well, the Tories will be different and will manage the finances. That's what we were trying to get across. I'm not saying that they need, necessarily need to take that approach. But don't you think they need to paint a bit more of a vivid picture of the impressions you will get of how a government will be different under Labour? Look, I agree. And I think that is a big challenge for Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves to flesh out their growth, their employment, their transformational plan. And I think that that is what Blair Brown has set out to try to do in 1997 with some success, although all the same criticisms were made of Blair or Brown in 96, 97. They've got no policy. They're not telling us what they're really going to do, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, back in 97, we had one windfall tax, which we didn't put a number on and turned out to be a one-off five billion. And other than that, assisted places to class sizes was small money. They were talking about £28 billion a year. I mean, it was a massive commitment and not a sensible thing to pre-commit to in the context that they found themselves in fiscally. And so they need to flesh it out. They do. But, you know, there was nothing comparable to the £28 billion a year in 79 or 97 or 2010. And, you know, I think they'll look back and think that actually putting that number on it was a mistake and they'll be pleased to be off it. Now, listen, we should turn now to the Conservatives' week. And it's been quite quite a week for the Tories. Has Rishi Sunak been entering into some unwise bets? We'll discuss that after the break. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So welcome back. We're going to talk about Rishi Sunak's week. He's had quite a bumpy time. But of course, in the news, it was pretty dominated by not the Prime Minister, but the former Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and those others arriving at their, um, I think it's called Popular Conservatism Conference. Feels like a bit of a contradiction in terms. Popcon. Popcon is what they're calling it, Ed. Are they, I mean, why do they get so much publicity? Lots of people were thinking, why are they, you know, is the news reporting all of this? What is going on? And presumably, this is the beauty contest for the next Tory leadership contest underway? Well, the odd thing is it's being led by the winner of the last Tory leadership contest, Liz Truss, who then uh, imploded. You know, I I think let's start with the popular conservatives. You know, this is yet another ginger group inside the Conservative Party. I have to say I I had slightly higher expectations of this because the Liz Truss I first met in 2010, who was a backbench Tory MP, set up something called the Free Market Group of conservative backbenchers. And they came forward, they used to come and see me as chancellor, and they used to come forward with ideas to shrink the size of the state, to bring about reform in education, to bring kind of private providers into the NHS, to do all sorts of things which actually, you know, sensible reforming conservatives can get their head around. And it was very economic. And I I read the transcript, I didn't actually watch it, um, because that would wake the baby. But I read, read the transcript of what Liz Truss said at this popcom launch with an odd array of Tory MPs sitting in front of her, like the guy who's just resigned, his deputy chairman, Lee Anderson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Pretty Patel. Anyway, you, you read it, and it's basically a kind of rant against the liberal establishment, you know, the left-wing takeover of uh, various quangos, an attack on environmentalists and LGBT activists and all this kind of thing. And it was just all over the place, frankly. And I want Liz Truss 1.0, not Liz Truss 3.0. What is missing in the conservative debate at the moment is, is the classic argument, how do you create a smaller state, lower tax state, more competitive state? How do you reform public services? And unfortunately, these popcorns, like all the other groups in the Conservative Party, are heading up a completely different and blind or one-way street, which is the uh, kind of woke war street, which is an absolute dead end for the Tories. I mean, of course, the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph lauded the first Liz Truss um, budget. At last, a proper conservative budget, they said. And then 
everything fell apart. The markets went wild. Nothing was costed and paid for. Quasi quarting made things worse by saying more unfunded tax cuts to come. Is the problem for Liz Trust and that group that they feel as though they messed up the economic argument so badly that they've now had to move over and join Suella Braverman and Kimmy Badnock and others on the woke agenda because that feels a bit safer? Well, there's there's one line in Liz's speech this week, which is she, she complains about the fact that the state takes 46% of national income. And when I stopped being chancellor, it was taking just under 40% of national income. So the state has expanded hugely under the Conservatives. And that's, I think, rich ground for the Conservatives to be looking at. You know, that's what we want to hear. The Liz Trust quasi quartung budget would have been a Conservative budget if it had been paid for, because an absolute central point of Conservatism is sound public finances. That is what William Pitt first talked about 200 years ago. It's what Margaret Thatcher used to bang on about as well. And hopefully it's what we were trying to do under the Cameron government as well. So, so what were the Mail and the Telegraph doing then? Why were they lauding this? I mean, well, have, because they, have they, like, they lost their, their, their bearings? Because the Tories have got hooked on the benefits of a smaller state, which is lower taxes, without having the courage to advocate the cuts in public expenditure or the restraints in public expenditure and in benefit entitlement and the like required to pay for it. And indeed, some of the deregulatory things you need to do create the more productive economy that can help pay for it. So, you know, there's two ways to get the 46% down. You can either grow the economy whilst keeping the state relatively the same size, or you can shrink the size of the state. So there are two approaches, but you, you heard none of that from these popcorns. And you're not really hearing it much from the government. I mean, I think they're trying to establish a consistent argument, you know, and I heard again from some of the people around the prime minister that they know that just a single tax cut and a budget or an awesome statement isn't going to do it. They've got to establish a more consistent narrative that they are delivering a lower cost state. Um, But, you know, if you look at Rishi Sunak's week, again, it's all over the place. You know, you must be so frustrated. You know, why isn't he listening to you? Because you've said he's got to be true to himself, be who he is, get back to the economic argument. And then we see this week in PMQs, he gets into trouble on woke issues. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then earlier in the week with Piers Morgan, he's doing the sort of macho alpha male, I'll match you in a bet about boat numbers. Neither of these feel true to his persona. It's like he's listening to the wrong people. Maybe we should listen to the Piers Morgan clip. I'll bet you a £1,000 to a refugee charity you don't get anybody on those planes before the election. Will you take that bet? Well, I, well, I want to get the people on the planes, Pardon right? Of course I want to get the people on the planes. £1,000. Right? right, I want to get the people on the planes. And then there was the exchange in PMQs about um, trans issues at the same time as the, the mother of the murdered teenager, Brianna Jai, was up in the gallery. And here's what happened. But it's a bit rich, Mr. Speaker, to hear about promises from someone who's broken every single promise he was elected on. I mean, I think I counted almost 30 in the last year. Pensions, planning, peerages, public sector pay, tuition fees, childcare, second referendums, defining a woman. Although, although in fairness, that was only 99% of a U-turn. The, The list goes on, but the theme is the same, Mr Speaker. It's empty words, broken promises and absolutely no plan.
of all of all the work of all the weeks to say that when Brianna's mother is in this chamber shame parading as a man of integrity when he's got absolutely no responsibility absolute the truth is that macho attack dog isn't his true persona and what's the reason why he's going to these lines well i think there's just a series of mistakes so the piers morgan is a tough person to be interviewed by right i think we can all accept that and that is a fairly classic piers morgan trick i don't mean to denigrate piers it's a very clever approach which is to offer a bet i remember being you know i've done interviews was a reporter in the northwest of England, where my constituency was, who would often bet me uh, that the Tories were going to win the election. This was, by the way, in 2005 when I didn't think we were going to win the election. But he would bet me live on air. And, and, you know, you have to, if you don't take the bet, you know, you're not entering into the sort of laddish spirit of the interview or you don't think the Tories are going to win in my case. So, you know, I did the bet, but I did it. I can't remember what it was, but it was for like 10 quid and it's going to go to a local charity. There's you know, Chancellor, though, you would never have taken a bet. Right. So, you know, but, but I learned, you know, I learned by the time I got to Chancellor that that is a, that's a classic trap. And of course, a thousand pound bet is a huge amount of money and plays, Piers Morgan knew exactly what he was doing, which was he was trapping Sunak into talking about large sums of money because he's wealthy that, you know, most ordinary people would think, are, are way beyond their reach in terms of making a bet. But Rishi's trying to have a good conversational with Piers Morgan. And by the way, that interview, broadly speaking, was pretty good, although he did also get a con- concession, Piers Morgan, out of uh, Sunat that the NHS waiting list targets weren't being met. And then in Prime Minister's question, I mean, here I have to say, I'm, you know, by the way, I'm always the person who says you blame the leader, not the team, because it's, a cl- you know, again, a classic thing in politics. You blame the advisors because you don't want it. But... You know, really, the PMQ's team should have told Sunak that the mother of the murdered teenager, Brianna Jai, was in the gallery. And therefore, this was not the week to do his attack on Keir Starmer and the trans issue. And, you know, I sat in many, many meetings, PMQ prep meetings with David Cameron, and there would always be, you know, these people in the gallery, this days, this particular memorial day, whatever it happens to be. I mean, maybe they did tell him and he just forgot. But certainly someone should have said, leave that out this week. And the result is at the end of this week, you've just had a series of messy things again in the Conservative Party. You've had the popcorn launch, okay, beyond Sunak's control. You know, he's probably going to have to apologize to Brianna Jai's parents. And if you want to know what they wanted to do this week, look at the party political broadcast they put out. This was Rishi Sunak standing in front of a whiteboard. This is the Sunak I want to see. This is real Rishi. This is him standing in front of a whiteboard like he's in some venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. And he's literally drawing on the board how he thinks about the economy and public spending and whatever. And it's really good because it's real and it's him and it's not like some slick PPB we've seen before. It's different and engaging. And that's because they planned it. That's what they wanted to do this week. Instead of ending up with all these, you know, unnecessary mistakes, mishaps, slips, you know, you just got to be disciplined. You know, if you're going to win this election, particularly when you're 20 points behind, you have got to stick to your message, stick to your message, don't make mistakes and be disciplined. But there is, I think, 
uh, it was revealing when you said that you made that mistake in 2005 when you were kind of new into Parliament. You'd only been there four years, but you learned. And similarly, in PMQs, if you make a mistake and you realise it, then if you don't correct it immediately, then things become worse. And, you know, in both cases, you know, at the point when Rishi Sunak sees the bet trap, he walks into it. He then is clunky in the way he handles the aftermath of the Keir Starmer shame language. They're so slow that after PMQs, his press people don't know what to say. Meanwhile, Kemi Badenoch is out there not supporting the leader, but doubling down on the the attack against Labour while saying, of course, she handles these issues more sensitively, but it would be wrong to apologise, which, of course, then makes the apology harder. So it isn't only the lines being not the right lines. It's also that in those moments, I think he's making wrong calls. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's partly because they don't really know yet who they're trying to win over. The kind of brilliant election strategist for George W. Bush, Carl Rove, was never on to cup of tea, but I have to say I've got to meet him quite a few times. He was absolutely brilliant on elections. And he had this theory that you, you can only hold a certain number of marbles in your hand, like marble, glass marbles. And, and you should think of an election as holding a, a handful of marbles. And one of them might be, you know, suburban female voters and another might be African-American voters. And th- there's a limit to how many, you can't win over every vote in the country and you make choices. And for every marble you put into your hand once it's full, another marble drops out. And I think the risk of what's going on at the moment is this, you know, the the line at PMQs on the culture wars, which I mentioned before, the Liz Truss speech to the popcorn launch, again, about the kind of liberal left establishment and the lefty takeover and all this kind of thing. It is losing the Conservative Party, the support of liberal, small L liberal England, which was critical to its success in 2010 and 2015. And maybe in climate change too. Yes, and exactly. And on climate, you know, the Conservative Party was leading on the green issue in the first half of this period of government, again, uh, from 2010 onwards. And on LGBT rights, it was a Conservative government or a coalition government led by a Conservative Prime Minister that legalised same-sex marriage. And as a result, a majority of gay people voted Conservative in 2015. All of these people are being... If you sit there on the park bench saying the whole country's gone to the dogs and it was all much better in the past and we don't like you know gay activists and we don't like environmentalists and all of that you know those people it's not surprising they turn around and say well we don't like you and they are you know conservatives at the moment facing liberal democrat opponents in the south of england are terrified right the liberal democrat threat is growing and growing and growing precisely because the conservatives seem to be actively abandoning liberal england And that is not Rishi Sunak. I know Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak is part of liberal England, and he shouldn't be embarrassed about that. It's one of his great strengths, as well as his focus on the economy and his diligence and his sobriety and all those things, which were evident when he was standing in front of a clipboard. You know, you can't imagine Boris Johnson doing that party political broadcast, can you? Right? There'd be red wine stains all over the clipboard by the time (laughs) he finished, right? You know, that is, that's the Sunak we need to see, and he He's got to get his machine disciplined if he's got any chance of winning this election. Well, I, um, I'm going to give him a, a tip, which I think 
will be something that he'll understand because he's a big cricket fan, you know. That's kind of how he likes to spend his time. And uh, there's a Nasser Hussain insight, which I think is really important, that if batsmen get into trouble and start thinking too much about their technique and they're thinking the whole time, you know, what's my line, what's my technique, how should I adjust things, it all goes wrong and you've got to get back to playing naturally and freely without that being all in your in your head. And he's got to get back to being the politician he is and was rather than spending too much time thinking about the lines he's been given and how to respond in the particular moment. And it feels to me that he's getting too much advice and he actually just needs to get back to, I think, being the person we know, which is decent, earnest, a bit nerdy, as you say, not macho, not the uh, attack dog. I think the other thing to say is that you know this week... The admission that they're not going to beat the NHS waiting times, also um, dentistry, those issues will be a bigger deal, the NHS and waiting times, than pretty much anything else other than the economy and cost of living by the time you get to the election. And one thing, we said we'd talk about this today, the announcement from the palace that His Royal Highness the King has cancer and having treatment, that will put in the spotlight now for coming months what is happening in our National Health Service. And... We're going to talk about the wider implications of the royal diagnosis next. So we had the news this week from Buckingham Palace that uh, King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer, is being treated. And it was unusual, I think, uh, for me, in, in two ways. One is just very unusual, very modern, very typical of Charles to want this to be made public. Of course, in the past, historically, when members of the royal family were being treated with an illness, it wasn't something which was spoken about publicly. His grandfather famously had major surgery, and this was kept from the, the public. And also, it's it just shows you how our society has changed in the way in which we think about cancer. Because, of course, you know, to have a diagnosis of cancer is terrible and frightening and worrying. But, you know, when I was younger, when we were younger, growing up, it was, you know, terrible news. Whereas today, there's been such advances in in treatment that people can manage it and focus on it and get the treatment they need and often, not absolutely not always, come through it. So this announcement was a very, a different kind of monarchy in a in a different era from how things would have been 30, 50, 70 years ago. Well, that's true. I mean, I was reading that when George VI had lung cancer, they didn't even tell George VI that he had lung cancer. So things have changed quite a bit. I mean, the only, you know, what I would say is, I think it was, the statement did say, we, we want to end the speculation. <laughs> of course, it created massive speculation. And I thought it's just a reminder that, you know, there's a human being at the center of this institution. There's a person who is told that they have a cancer. Now we, you know, we're told it's been caught early. And of course, we wish him and his family really well. But it, it, it's so public. They live their lives, as, as the, does the Princess of Wales, Kate, who's also been in hospital, right in the centre of the public eye. And it, you know, you and I had a brief experience for a few years of being public figures, with you know one hundredth of the press attention, and for only a portion of our lives. These people, they're born with it and they die with it. And um, it's that sort of odd thing about the monarchy that it's both a revered, ancient, central institution to our state. You know, they have to point out that King Charles will be continuing to read cabinet papers and meet the prime minister and, you know, there'll be procedures in place for dissolving parliament and the like. So, you know, it's it's right at the heart of the the state. 
And yet it's also a family and a set of individuals. And I guess partly because I've been, for very good reasons, in hospital this week with the birth of our baby, just sort of just a reminder, it's very, very hard being at the centre of it all, as they are. It's absolutely humanising for Charles because um, everybody will kind of empathise and be with him now through this journey. Somebody asked me whether it will make much difference to the government. And I think the answer to that is no. And they've been very clear to make those announcements, as you said. But I think for Charles, this will be massively frustrating because, you know, I think it's a mistake to think of Charles as a man who just wanted to be king. We both worked with him a lot in different ways over the years. He waited a long time to be king, but he's always had a purpose and a mission. And he will this year be looking forward to going to Australia, to the Commonwealth heads of government meeting. I thought what he did at the coronation around the emphasis on interfaith, on faiths working together and reflecting the complexity and diversity of our country. And that is a mission of his. And the reality is when you're dealing with this kind of cancer diagnosis, it has to become your front and centre focus and rightly so. But he'll be very frustrated because I think he wants to use his monarchy to do things and that will have to take to some extent a backseat role now for him uh, while he deals with um, his immediate challenges. Well, I think he was the most consequential Prince of Wales in modern British history. I think the things he did with the Prince's Trust, uh, his campaigns on the environment, on architecture and so on. You know, I mean, I went to uh, stay at Dumfries House, which is this house in Scotland that he essentially kind of rescued and all its historic furniture was going to be sold. And it looked at the the first sight as a slightly odd thing for the then Prince Charles to be doing, stepping in to save a bunch of Chippendale furniture. But if you go up there, there's an incredible amount of work going on around the estate and in the nearby town, which is, you know, part of a very deprived former coalfield area in Scotland. And there's, you know, all sorts of apprenticeship schemes, training schemes, amazing number of array of things that he's driven. You know, the truth is he had a very long period as Prince of Wales and he did a huge amount. In British history, monarchs who succeed at a late age, at an older age to the throne, you know, just their, their chance of putting their stamp on the monarchy is much more limited than like his mother, who was in her 20s when she became the queen. And that's a reality. And it's an interesting challenge for Prince William. You know, he's got to step up now. There's all eyes on him. That's frankly the nature of the succession. And he's got to, I think, try and continue to build out his agenda. And fun enough, I think there's an opportunity around the thing that both his father and he seem to be passionate about, and that is the environment. It's been a theme of the podcast. Labour stepping away from its spending pledges on the environment, the Tories backing away from the whole issue of climate change. And the people who get the most attention in Britain, the people with the biggest platform, the people who, when they speak, get on the front page of every newspaper every single time, the royal family, and particularly Charles and William, you know, this is their issue, the environment. And if I were them, I would step into something of the vacuum that the political parties are creating. And they don't have to do it in a political way, but it's, it's such a powerful cause and it speaks to future generations as well as the kind of ancient historic past of the monarchy. And it's totally appropriate for them to, to do so, and they have to be careful how they do it. I'm always kind of surprised, aren't you? Look, when I was there for three years, Children's Schools and Families, Education Secretary, I met Charles lots of times. We went to the drawing school. We met head teachers. We went to school seminars. He wrote me letters. People sometimes ask, and you'll get the same, George, was this inappropriate? Was he interfering? 
I never felt that. I always was really pleased that he was interested and engaged. I liked the letters. I liked the conversations. I replied to him. I never felt he was telling me what to do. And frankly, he couldn't tell us what to do because we had the mandate from our manifesto. We were elected and he wasn't. But the engagement was welcome and challenging and sometimes really positive. The work of the Prince's Trust was brilliant, but he was a champion for how to do it. And I never felt that was inappropriate. And I would think, um, you know, I hope he's still writing letters. And wearing his Greek ties. Well, that I have to say, something. as chair of the British Museum, there was a little smile on my face when uh, he put on his special Greek tie after the Prime Minister had refused to see oh, the Greek yeah. Prime Minister. <laughs> and I thought, you know, the palace furiously said, you know, no, 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 nothing was meant by it. But I've dealt a lot with Charles over my career. And uh, this is a man who thinks very carefully about the things he does and is also a very careful dresser. And I'm not going to believe anyone who tells me that he put that tie on by coincidence or by mistake or whatever. You know, he knew he was expressing solidarity to the uh, nation that his uh, father, after all, was uh, born into. Absolutely. He has a sense of um, humour and mischief and enjoys the fun and the irony of situations. I remember the backstage at the Royal Albert Hall when I was about to go on stage holding a banjo to sing When I'm Cleaning Windows, looking like George Formby with Harry Hill and Frank Skinner for the Queen's 92nd birthday, live on BBC One. I mean, completely crazy. And as we were waiting to go on, Prince Charles was there because he was going on with us. And he said, turned to me and he said, Ed, he said, what on earth are you doing now? What are you doing? I don't really it's know. It's a good question. You know, no <laughs> As idea. always, a very but, good question from the monarch. He, but he, but he, um, he found it very, very funny. It was, it was great. We wish Prince Charles and Queen Camilla and all the family every best wish. And we hope that the treatment goes well. And we hope he's able to not just continue the duties he needs to do in the coming months, but he's soon back um, leading on the issues he wants to lead on and showing that the monarchy in the 21st century is, is as important and relevant and you know, path-breaking as it's always been. And uh, best wishes to them all. Absolutely. That's the end of this week's show. On Monday, of course, you can catch our latest episode of Ex-Ministers Questions, EMQs, when we answer all the brilliant questions that you are sending in to us at the moment. Well, not all of them, a selection of them. We can't answer them all, but we, are, we will do our best. There are so many. And I, mean, I actually really enjoyed um, looking at the, the list. And there's one really good one which came in, which was about our best celebrity meeting. And I'm really interested to find out your best celebrity meeting. I'm also interested to know, I mean, I hadn't realised this until I did an interview with her a few months ago, that Liam Fox had a long-term relationship with Natalie Imbroglio. I mean, Amazing. I've got to ask you about that, but we'll save that for EMQs. And don't forget, you can always send in your questions to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. See you Monday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.